0: Always say, well, having seen so much mathematics in the universe, if there is a God who's definitely or she's definitely or it is definitely a mathematician, I would reverse that. I would say, actually, the, the God that you're all after is mathematics.
1: Hello, and welcome to Confessions. This is the podcast in which I talk to interesting and well-known guests and try and drill down into their core beliefs. And today, I'm very lucky to have here with me Marcus de Sotoy, who's the professor of the public understanding of science at the University of Oxford, and professor of mathematics. That's right. And uh, lots I, I'm of a... very greedy. Two professorships. <laughs> Two professorships. Um, welcome. The the way we typically work in this discussion is we begin by just talking a little bit about your background and where you come from and your sort of your as it were, family values from where you were brought up, and then we sort of try and describe your intellectual trajectory from there. So perhaps you could say something about Henley-on-Thames, wasn't it?
0: That's right. I grew up in in Henley. I was born in London, uh, but we moved to Oxfordshire, um, and I grew up in a a very supportive family. My mother... um, It's interesting because I think my mother and my father kind of represent two sides of my character. My mother was very much on the art side. Uh, She'd done English at university. Um, She was very creative. We always kind of did little uh, stage little plays with my sister and things like that. Was my dad, um, uh, he didn't go to university. We went straight into the computing industry um, uh, and he worked for uh, ICL, uh, the British computer firm. So I think uh, sort of my trajectory has been sort of... uh, influenced by those two sides, the artistic and the very logical. So I think they've they've been very important to to where I ended up. Actually, you know, I think when you talk to a mathematician, you assume they must have been born a mathematician uh, and that I was incredibly good at numbers right from the off. And that's certainly not true. When I was a Uh, primary school I remember my teachers kind of despairing that um, there was a chance we might have moved to Edinburgh and there was uh, there I would have had to done a kind of um, 11 plus type exam and the teacher said he's going to fail this he can't do sums he's useless at spelling That's one of the reasons I'm very much against the grammar school system because people develop at very different stages if I'd been tested at that stage um, I I wouldn't have made the grade um I kind of developed a bit later. I went to my local comprehensive school. Oxygen has a comprehensive system. Um, And it was there that I started to kind of, my my brain was kind of sparked by what we were doing. And one of the kind of key moments for me was my maths teacher when I was about 12 or 13. uh, In the middle of a maths class uh, said, I want to see you after the class. He was a Dower Scots. I'm not going to do a Scottish accent. But, um, <laughs> uh, and I thought, oh, gosh, I'm in trouble. Um, and he, uh, at the end of the cart, I went up. He took me around the back of the maths block. I thought, wow, I'm seriously in trouble now. Um, and he said, uh, look, this is where I smoke my break time cigar because the teachers do not let me smoke in the common room. And he said, look, I think you should find out what maths is really about because it's not what we're doing in the classroom. It's not about sines, cosines, percentages, long division, Something much more exciting and beautiful. And he recommended a few books to me. uh, And that weekend, I went up with my dad to uh, Oxford, to Blackwell's. Uh, I remember Blackwell's is wonderful. It's like this kind of TARDIS. It's it's It's, a temple, that place. Well, it is. But it's 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 kind of weird. It's like a tiny little book shop on the front. But you go in and there's this enormous great uh, shop on the inside, just like the TARDIS. And downstairs, is Norrington where, room, yeah, Norrington room, where all the science and philosophy books are. And so my dad took the list and, and found the books, and, and I kind of wandered around, just pulling books off the shelf. Um And I, I couldn't understand a word of what was written there. It all seemed to be in some code, but I could see undergraduates sort of s- standing there, engrossed in these things, as if there was some great story there. And It kind of fascinated me. And weirdly, there were some journals um, of a very academic journal called Invenciones Mathematica, um, which is, you know, one of the high-level journals you aspire to be published in. And uh, I took one of these, and I still have that copy. I still don't understand most of the things (laughs) which are written in there. But I took it, and I sort of... I I went away determined to crack this code. Um, And one of the books that uh, my teacher... Well, there were two that were very significant. One was called the language of mathematics. Now, I had actually fantasised about being a, a linguist because uh, my mum had been in the Foreign Office um, before she had to... Actually, when she got married, she was forced to leave the Foreign Office as a woman at that time. And she kind of uh, spun this kind of myth. It was her creative side that she'd been a spy in the Foreign Office, you know, and you know, I was obsessed with 007 and James Bond. And the she still had the black gun that was every Foreign Office member was given. It was hidden somewhere in the house. So I kind of fantasised that being in the Foreign Office was like being James Bond. And and so I I signed up to all the languages my school did at the time, but found them deeply frustrating, because I think I was already craving a sense of kind of logic and sort of control, which these languages are all kind of irregular verbs, strange spellings. Yet when I read this book, The Language of Mathematics, I suddenly realised I'd found the language that I wanted to learn, which was one which was completely logical, made total sense. Doesn't didn't mean that it didn't have surprises, twists and turns and things, um, uh, but it somehow resonated with me as a logical language, but also a language which seemed to be the language that nature spoke. There was, it was full of stories of um, mathematics appearing all over the natural world. I'm fascinated by what you just said, absolutely fascinated by what you said, that
1: mathematics is a language, it's almost like a perfect language, there's the perfect language. What, 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 what's at the heart of the desire to, as it were, speak the perfect language? Is it, is it control? Is it, is it a sense of... Hmm. I mean, I can imagine that some people in, in emotional flux might, might like the sort of anchor of perfection. What is, what is the desire for, uh, for the perfect language a
0: desire for? Well, I think that you've, you've picked on a couple of key moments there. One for me is the control, because I <clears> think I was a pretty insecure kind of teenager. Uh, I was quite spotty as a teenager. Um, I was very nerdy, geeky. And I think I did um, gravitate towards mathematics because I, I liked the security of knowing that I got the right answer, that I didn't have to speak up for this argument because it spoke for itself. And I still really love that side of mathematics. Actually, in contrast to the sciences, um, I think there's a key difference between mathematics and the other sciences. One of them being that in the sciences, you can never be sure that you've got the right theory. Um, it's, uh, Karl Popper says that the theory is only scientific if it's possible to be falsified. So it has to have the chance to be proved wrong. And it means there's actually a lot more vitriol. For example, if you go onto a physics blog, Um, There's this really argumentative and because people are arguing for their particular position and you don't get that in mathematics blogs because and mathematics journals, because once you prove something, it's it's there forever. Um, I mean, there might be a mistake in the proof um, and that's uh, an interesting issue, but most of the time there it's everything's on the table and it speaks for itself. And so there is a permanence about mathematics, which I really um, was drawn to.
1: It's interesting that you're. I mean, am I right in saying this? I mean, you're the professor of the public understanding of science, but you're not actually a scientist. I don't know if that. I mean, is that is that true or not true? I mean, I'm I'm asking that. I mean, I, I, and the reason I I suspect that is because science is all about experimentation and the scientific method, and your and your work is sort of a priori. I mean, it's it's that's 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 what it's really. So interesting.
0: this is the other reason I think I chose mathematics because I think mathematics sits beautifully in that kind of bridge between the arts and the sciences. Um, I think uh, mathematics is the language of science, and that's why I think actually choosing a mathematician for this job uh, was a very clever choice. I mean, I would say that because I wanted the job and got it. But, um, you know, mathematics does underpin all of the other sciences, Uh, physics, certainly, chemistry, biology more and more so, neuroscience, a lot of mathematics starting to bubble up there. But I think that there is still a different side to mathematics, which is one which is very creative. And that is, I think, uh, why the second book that my teacher recommended to me when we went up to Oxford was very important. It was called A Mathematician's Apology. Um, This is a book, very short little book, written by G.H. Hardy, a Cambridge mathematician um, between the, the two world wars. And it's a book about what it means to be a mathematician. And in there, he celebrates mathematics as a creative art, he says. I, I believe mathematics is a creative art rather than a useful science. And that he's very dismissive of all the mathematics that's used in engineering and things. This is not real mathematics. And I think this really told me, because I had a kind of artistic side coming from my mother. I'd fallen in love with music, started learning the trumpet about the same time, that my teacher got me interested in maths. I loved theatre. I I loved the arts. And this book showed me that actually doing mathematics, you can both be a scientist, but still there's uh, an act of creativity in the mathematics that we make. Certainty and creativity
1: feel very different sorts of values, but they're not to you, are they?
0: No. I mean, I think... See, there's this eternal question about, where is mathematics discovered or created. Uh, if it's discovered, then it feels quite scientific, but mathematicians constantly talk about um, the, the creativity of their subjects. And how can it be creative, actually, if something is either true or it's false? I mean, there doesn't seem room there for any uh, personal expression. So I've written this new book called The Creativity Code, um, which is all about whether AI is going to be sort of having a, a massive impact on our something we regard as uniquely human, being creative. Um, and I would always use creativity as my protection in mathematics against AI um, being able to do my subject because at first sight, it looks like, well, if a computer can play chess very well, surely it can do mathematics. But my point is that, yeah, sure, mathematics is a kind of set of logical moves, therefore a bit like chess moves. Um, There are right and wrong moves. Yet within that uh, kind of tree of possibilities, there are many pathways you can take. And that's where the creativity emerges because, um, actually, I compare in the book the idea... uh, I love this story by um, Borges called The Library of Babel. This library that Borges creates is um, a vast library. It's meant to contain every single book that it's possible to write. Um, And you think, wow, that's exciting. And the librarian inside this library gets excited by the idea that this library is total. But as the story goes on, very short story, 10 pages, Um, the librarian gets rather depressed because he realises although this library contains everything, in fact, it contains nothing because nobody's made any choices about the books that are worth reading. Now, I think that many people believe that as a mathematician, I'm trying to create a kind of mathematical library of Babel, that I'm trying to just write down all the true statements about numbers and geometry. And surely, you know, that's the aim, to just write down as many true things and prove them. And I say that's totally not what mathematics is about. Mathematics has a very kind of creative, emotional side, which is I'm choosing the stories that I want to tell in my seminars, write in uh, the journals. And those stories are governed by an aesthetic kind of emotional journey. I want to take my readers, my listeners to my seminars on a journey where they sort of start somewhere secure, the axioms or the things we've proved so far. And I want to show them the unexpected twists and turns. So I think there's a lot of choice involved within that landscape, and that's where the creativity goes. So,
1: so maths is is found, not discovered, As, is, is made, not found. Is that, is that your line?
0: I, I, I think there's... the Weirdly, I think there's a, a, a... You can use both of those words, because I think it's still true that there are... You know, I, I can't make num- the something... numbers
1: exist? Sorry, let's just... Let... So
0: I'm a Platonist. Okay. Um, I'll be right up front there. I... And I think it's, I believe that there is mathematical truths, mathematics, um, even if they weren't conscious minds.
1: So there's something to, if there are four pens, there's something to the number four rather than just the pens, as it were. There's a fourness that's not just about the penness.
0: That's right. And that four is divisible. So it can be divided up into two lots of two, whilst five pens, that's prime. There's a prime number pens. And therefore you cannot... That's indivisible. If you had five of anything, you wouldn't be able to range them into a sort of um, rectangle of, you know, two by two, four. That's fine. Six is two by three. Five, you cannot break but what's down.
1: What's the ontological nature of the four, as it were? What in what does that? that were their sort of substance or whatever? What in what does it subsist? What 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 is four?
0: Well, I, I, there's a deep philosophical yes. question, uh, and and I think you know, for for me, it, it isn't something which we have conjured up because of the way we look at the world. I do believe it's something which has a kind of ontological existence um, and it's a non-physical existence. And I think this is the really fascinating thing for me is that mathematics is a kind of world of ideas um, and it doesn't need physicality. I mean, we we then physicalize this. You sound this like a theologian four. now. <laughs> well, you see, I I've, I've, I went to Bhutan. I had this wonderful opportunity to go... Um, and to a literary festival to share some of my uh, books with uh, people in Bhutan. And and whilst I was there, I spent some time talking to some uh, Buddhist philosophers, and I found that their idea of cosmological ideas resonated very strongly with my ideas of the world. Because, you know, one thing is that when you do science, you find maths bubbling absolutely under everything. and You begin to go under, well, wow, this is extraordinary. How come they you know, is the maths something that we're putting on top of that as our language to navigate that? Or is it genuinely sitting underneath the thing? Um, uh, and it, it, is there sort of devoid of the physicality? And I'm a believer in the second. Here, Here's something that's uh, that came out actually of my research, in my previous book, What We Cannot Know, because I, I started to see mathematics just bubbling absolutely under everything. And there, there was a kind of, theological strand to to that book, because I was interested in those things which science may never be able to answer and um, whether the things which transcend science, is there anything? Perhaps science can answer everything. But that's actually the conclusion of that book, because I was after sort of the idea of of some sort of theological side to, to science and mathematics. And, you know, a lot of people are after a kind of explanation of where all of this stuff came from. Uh, the the creation. What, what what and creativity is actually key to the this new book, the, the AI book, you know, creativity. Can something come from nothing? Where did it all come from? It does it need a first cause? And my kids always say, um, yeah, the trouble with having a God or a creator is, well, who created the creator? And they go into this kind of infinite infinite regress. So I'm so to address that, what you need is something which kind of exists outside of time. Something which doesn't need a, a moment of creation. And for me, that's a key aspect of mathematics. It, it If these things are platonic, kind of, you know, the fourness of something or uh, or the kind of things that I deal with in mathematics, I don't believe they needed a moment. Of, they are just always there. It's a, it's a property of these this things. This really does sound like theology. <laughs> well, exactly. So for me, you see this, see, people always say, well, having seen so much mathematics in the universe, you know, they say, well, if, if there is a God he's definitely or she's definitely or it is definitely a mathematician, I would reverse that. I would say, actually, the, the God that you're all after is mathematics. That if you're after some sort of first cause, you need something which is outside of time and something which is kind of universal and, and has truth about it. And I think that's mathematics. We are a piece of physicalized mathematics.
1: One of the nervousnesses I have, I guess, about mathematicians, scientists talking about religion. Uh, is the is the coming together of the desire for certainty and religion because that those yeah. two things i mean I spend my much of my life um, battling with fundamentalists, fundamentalists for whom certainty in in religious terms is absolutely what they 're after, and so when I find a scientist or a mathematician who quite rightly i understandably c- certainty is there is their thing, moving into theology it's like it I always think, oh my this is this this is a fundamentalist in the making.
0: <laughs> Aha. Uh, no, actually, um Do you understand the anxiety about the I, conjunction I, I between those do, two? But I think that you can use um these tools at a kind of uh, on a on a higher level, uh, which is you know, that's what I tried to do in the What We Cannot Know book, is to to try and use my tools to identify um, the things which we can't be certain about. Yes, yes, yes. I, I, I'm really intrigued by: can we use our tools of mathematics and logic and science <clears> to identify <throat> questions which we can see by the nature of the question are beyond science? I, I mean, and we have an absolutely prime example in my own subject of mathematics, because the whole journey of mathematics in, ever since the ancient Greeks seemed to be, um, you know, if if there's a true statement about numbers, for example, that's our theorem that this equation does not have any uh, solutions in the whole numbers, um, and then we try to prove that that is the case. So we seem to be on a journey um, for 2,000 years since the ancient Greeks of, of trying to construct proofs of all the true statements about numbers. And then something devastating <laughs> happened to our subject um, at the beginning of the 20th century, because um, this logician, uh, Austrian logician, Kurt Gödel, um, showed that actually there are, within mathematics, if you've got a system of mathematics uh, with axioms describing numbers, that there will always be true statements about numbers which cannot be proved true within that system of mathematics. Um, So Gödel was able to use mathematics to turn on itself and show that it has limitations, it has uncertainty. In fact, it's called Gödel's incompleteness theorem. It is incomplete and there will be things within a system of mathematics.
1: And there are things that you can
0: prove that you can't ever now, prove. Now, that's really weird, because how do you do that? Because, mm. well, how can you know this thing's true but you can't prove it? And the point is that we pull outside the system or we work um, outside the system of mathematics and show from the outside that uh, within that system, there are things which are true, which you can see are true from the outside, uh, which cannot be proved within that system. And that, for me, was one of the uh, kind of key things that i discovered in what we cannot know that very often limitations occur because of being stuck inside a system and that if you can pull outside that system you may be able to prove things and now that sounded to me wow it's mind it's mind blowing (laughs) blowing because of course we are stuck inside we you know we now talk about this thing called the multiverse um we're stuck in this our own universe but one of the solutions for um how uh, the universe seems to be so very finely tuned um some people on the intelligent design movement will say well you know there's a god dialing up all of the numbers that kind of like the mass of an electron the mass of a proton the electromagnetic force that these are all so perfectly tuned to create life we have to have an explanation of that the science's best explanation is that there are many universes and they're kind of being randomly assigned these numbers and of course we have to be in the one where life can form, but there are many other universes where where life didn't get going. But that's, you know, we're stuck inside our universe. How can we ever know about those other ones? This multiverse theory is beginning to sound very unscientific in kind of Carl Popper Sounds like metaphysics to me. Yes, exactly. So there's a lot of challenge at the moment. Some of the science that's coming out does sound uh, as if we're concocting stories which are untestable. But here's an example of one where we seem to be stuck inside a system. So let's come back down to earth from this. I
1: mean, I'm fascinated by this
0: and it's terribly important. But one
1: of the reasons I'm afraid, I'm afraid of mathematics. I fear mathematics. Oh, that's true. I, I fear it not and I fear it not because I, I don't understand it, though there is a bit of that. But, yes. I, oh, but okay. I fear it, but I fear it for another reason as well. And I fear it for its uh, its sort of totalizing ambition, which which I know you, yes. uh, you, you have sort of you have punctured a bit just now. But what I mean by that is we live in a sort of very data sort of obsessed absorbed world okay and i begin to fear that and you know this is all about social media and, and all the other things and so forth but the way in which we're being the attempt to describe our life fully with numbers numbers that can be controlled it begins to feel like this is a sort of totalizing an attempt to describe everything and and control everything and that begins to begins to sort of like really worry me Politically, about the sort of universalism, about we're describing everything in these numbers and we can control it.
0: Yes, uh, I think I share that worry, actually, because I think that uh, what I'm seeing is a kind of move away from the way we did science in the past, which was a a sort of combination of uh, experiment data, but then applying sort of analytic methods to try and understand why um, something seems to be happening like that. And the the power of big data and kind of machine learning to be able to to pick out patterns inside there um, is is almost uh, negating the fact to have to to find the why uh, and we just say well look it works who who cares why um, that's the case and I'm worried that the the power of these tools um, uh, might actually stop us asking well is this really um, a true connection? I mean, it certainly seems to be a correlation, but is is there really causation going on here? So I think we mustn't forget these tools. And that's where I think mathematics is key. It, you know, this is more statistics, which is going on, a, a lot of it, um, and really fascinating stuff. And I, I think these are extraordinary tools which are picking out um, uh, structures that we haven't got the language to articulate at the moment. I mean, a very kind of simple example that I give in the this new AI book, The Creativity Code, is... Um, the Netflix using uh, kind of machine learning to take the data, um, analyzing sort of film choices, people uh, scoring films on a scale of one star to five star. They don't know anything about the films, but according to these kind of likes and dislikes, they're able to group together films in particular kind of genres. Now, when you look at the data and see what the films are, some of the ways they've divided the films make a lot of sense. There's kind of thriller or romance or comedy But some of the ways they kind of divided the films, we don't seem to have a word to articulate what the difference is in these films, yet it seems to have spotted in our kind of subconscious likes and dislikes a a kind of... uh, It's almost like we're seeing the world in black and white, but it's revealing a kind of colour and texture to our kind of expressions of likes and dislikes that perhaps we need new language to articulate. So I think they're a really powerful tools that uh, are helping us to see new things. But I think there's real dangers here. And one of them is about bias that I'm really frightened of um, because we, this AI is training on data. um, And you're absolutely right about this idea that there's a kind of universality of maths that people are kind of nervous of. And people are using this to say that, well, anything created by an algorithm, that must be true because it's, it's, um, you know, neutral, um, and so, it bypasses free. politics. You see, that's yeah. the other thing.
1: There's no, there's no, there's no arguing with. There's no arguing with your truth. Yeah, exactly. So if you can, if you can leverage your no arguing with this for, a, as it were, a sociological or
0: political purpose, then I'm bloody nervous. Yes, and you should be because I mean, the, this is wrong. I mean, the algorithms have bias, and people are like, "Well, how how come?" It's 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 a bit of code. It's a... no? Because especially in this day and age. Um, these algorithms are learning on uh, data. They are being kind of let out. There's been a real shift in uh, kind of coding and AI because code used to be written from the co- kind of top down and the coder kind of had control and it was very mathematical. We seem to know what to expect out of it. But now code is being written to be able to change, mutate and evolve according to its interaction with data. Such that by the end, we actually don't know how the code is really working—it's it, kind of rejigged its parameters according to its interaction. Now, if it interacts on a load of data which actually has bias in it, it will learn that bias. And a beautiful example—I did an event with Wired just recently—and the the woman who was on after me was a student at MIT, um, working in kind of coding and robotics. And and she uh, she's a black student, and she found that the robots were not recognizing that she was in front of the the robot because uh and only she only got recognition when she put a white mask on her face oh, yeah, yeah. and she began to sort of ask "Well, what's going on here of course what had happened is that the robot had learned on a lot of faces but they were all white male faces and it hadn't learned to uh to pick up a a, a black face so um she's founded something called the uh, algorithmic justice league i mean she's Yes, great, yes, name, no, but great, name great. It. But it's very important yes, sir, that we yes. understand um, these biases uh, that may be going in because of the data that something's learning on. I mean, and that's actually why I think uh, this new book is about um, AI and can it create art? And one of the things I think art is important for is kind of learning about the mind of the other. You know, why do we write novels? Why do we create paintings? Because we want it's the hard problem of consciousness. I, I, I have to get inside your head. Now, I think that the art that AI will be producing might be one of our best tools for understanding these subconscious biases that it has, um, the the way that it's thinking, the decisions it's making. Um, a lot of people are being denied jobs, being put in prison, um, their mortgages being turned down because of uh, algorithms. Um, and we have to be able to question those algorithms and ask them, well, why did you do that? And the algorithms at the moment um, don't have the language to articulate why they're doing that. And I think this is one of the important next steps that's going to have to happen in society, that we need to be able to have make the algorithms accountable. They have to explain why they um, are making the, these moves. And I, uh, I, I've got some examples in the book where some of the art that's being produced by these algorithms reveal some of these biases. Um, there's something called Deep Dream that Google developed, which... It gives a, um, a, these visual recognition software a, a random load of pixels and asks, what do you see inside here? a bit like we play when we look mm. up at the clouds mm. and we, we see mm. sort of um, faces, sheep so. and yeah. faces. Yeah. And, and by sort of dialing up the kind of things that it sees inside there, we start to see w- what it's kind of You're seeing. psychoanalyzing
1: computers. <laughs> no, it, it,
0: it, that's totally true. And that's where I think there's a, you know, a role for the, the kind of artistic expression you know, we've got examples of AI creating Rembrandts. There's no point in that. That Rembrandt did it best, not an AI. But I think this is actually helping us to understand something deep inside this AI that we don't understand at the moment. And this this, this goes back to hearing you talk about this. Uh, and I'm reminded how we
1: started this conversation about you saying your mum was arts, your, your father was more numbers, there was the trumpet, there was the theatre and so forth. And one of the things that I've always thought about your work is that it's trying to... You know, first of all, say CP Snow was wrong to say there are sort of the arts goes one way and the sciences goes the other. I, I take that very strongly from what you say, but yes. also I take the idea to find a sort of human space within what feels like a sort of rather alien landscape to the human. And you are reclaiming maths and science for a human perspective. And I really like that a lot, actually, because part of my Anxiety with masses, I f- feel it 's a sort of lunar landscape which the sort of
0: human f- finds it very difficult to get any purchase yes i um because music is a very deep part of um, my life um you play the trumpet I don't play you, the you, trumpet i yeah. actually just started learning the cello, um, oh. it's a bit glorious, kind of learning something new. <clears> um, <throat> Uh, But it has been, and I listen to a lot of music when I'm creating my mathematics, I feel that it stimulates a very similar part of my brain. And I think one of the keys is the idea of kind of patterns and patterns evolving and pattern searching. But people get very nervous when I start to talk about kind of connections between mathematics and music. And I've I've done a lot of uh, kind of concerts with orchestras. I work with Daniel Harding um, in, in Stockholm, sort of showing some of the amazing mathematical structures Uh, hiding inside a lot of composition. What people get worried about is that I'm trying to take the emotion out of music and make it very cold, clinical and logical like mathematics. And, And I always say, no, what I'm trying to illustrate is actually the mathematics that I get excited by has an emotional side very similar to the one that I appreciate in music. Because you could say that music is all discovered. It's just a whole load of notes. And, you know, Beethoven's pulled out the grosser Fugue um, uh, as a particular combination of notes that um, he's interested in. Um, But all are possible. There is a kind of musical library of Babel sitting there. Um, And why did he pick something out? Because it's expressing as kind of an emotional landscape for him. And that's the mathematics for me that I love reading. I love presenting is one which... Which takes somebody on an emotional journey. So, just just to do a metaphysical question, which relates to the maths, has just popped yes. into my head.
1: Is like is. Um, uh, a musical tune and I'm trying to work out the yeah. sort of status of music and the status of maths and yes. so forth so you think numbers are out there and we sort of discover them is music out there in the same way and we discover it I mean is is Einer nach music exist before it was discovered really that sounds weird
0: yes I would say it does And, and wow and yes, now that course. sounds weird yes it does And and so the art the, the the, the act of being a creative artist is therefore to pick which of these space of possibilities is, is one which resonates with us as humans. Now, that's what I'm trying to do in mathematics as well. I'm not just trying to, you, you know, you're horrified at that idea because there are and Arch music is, you know, is beautiful. And there are lots of just things which aren't beautiful. And and for me, I'm doing the same in math. So There's just so many I could get. A I'm horrified by the metaphysics. I'm horrified right, by the. I'm horrified by the idea
1: that it pre-exists the creative act. I mean, that it's there before it 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 is actually made. I mean, so I, you and I, so I think probably, and this may be a temperamental difference. I don't know, but for for me, these are things that are made, not found. Now, you you seem to sort of think of the creative act as sort of going out there and finding it and that's extraordinary that it pre-exists the act of creation
0: yes but i i think that probably what i've just said is not a deep statement you see i mean the fact that there is a a whole world of possibilities of the way that you can combine notes sort of um uh means that it, you know just like the library of babel is a kind of uh got nothing in there it's a meaningless library if it's got all books inside there so so i don't think i've said anything sort of um uh Deeply, it's a fantasy
1: uh, though, the, the the Library of Babel, though, isn't it? I mean, it is a fantasy. I mean it's a sort of it's a sort of wow. imaginative It's an imaginative sort of invention.
0: Yes, although I would say that um, the logical possibilities of all those books existing um, it is there. So I don't think it's a fantasy. I think that that feeling like that maths exists without there being humans making choices inside there. Uh, is as vacuous as saying all music can possibly exist, all books can exist. Look, you, you coming back to numbers, you said, well, four, or five. You know, there's some really important numbers out there, like prime numbers, which I think exist um, without there being humans there. But what I think is very human is our, our the stories we will then tell about those numbers, the things that we get excited by, the fact that Fermat discovered that, well, if you take a prime and divide it by four and it has remained a one, like 41, 41, when you divide by 4, has remainder 1. He uh, believed that you can always write that number as two square numbers added together. In this case, it's uh, uh, 16 plus 25, 4 squared plus 5 squared. Now, it turns out there are infinitely many primes which have remainder 1 on division by 4, and we've now proved that um, you can always write those as two square numbers added together. Now, that's weird and remarkable and exciting how on earth these two things connected with each other. Now that fact about numbers is true, regardless of whether there are humans here. It it is it kind of has an ontology about it. Um, Yet, why do we pick that one out as opposed to some other thing? Because we are. I'm excited, and maybe if I could sort of spend enough time with you, you you'll get excited about that. That's weird. Why should prime numbers have anything to do with the square numbers? And you take me on this journey, and you have that aha moment, which is what I'm after in discovery, or when I'm reading a proof. What? Oh, I, I get it. Th- those two things are the same thing.
1: I'm going to ask you one last question about the library of all books and I'm going to shut up about it, but I am fascinated by it. So how does the stuff about Gödel's incompleteness theorem relate to the idea that you can have a library of all books? Because isn't, yes. isn't there a sort of... Isn't, isn't one of the things that, that, that Gödel might... Uh, hmm. th- th- there might be a wisdom, which is to say... There's a sort of there's a book there that can't be there. <laughs> yes, yeah.
0: Well, uh, Borges sort of loved that. Um, and I've I've not seen him really. He loved ideas of infinity. So one of the important, uh, kind of themes in that about the Library of Babel is whether the library is infinite. And actually, this relates to a big question in science about whether our universe is infinite. Actually, one of the questions which I believe might be beyond science to answer. Um, but I think Girdle would interpret um the kind of his theorem which says there are true statements which uh, within a system of mathematics you can't prove are true as saying if you're stuck inside uh, the library the mathematical library of Babel with all true statements about mathematics being on the shelves that the tools that we have um, as humans uh, will limit the fact the parts of the library we can visit and then will be rooms which we can't get to with those tools. And we might have to add a new axiom, which is what we've done in mathematics, in order to enable us to get the key to that room. But he will say, doesn't matter. There's always still more rooms. And that shows, actually, that the library, the mathematical library of Babel, as opposed to the library that Borges constructs, which is, in fact, very large but finite, is infinite. The number of possible true statements about mathematics is infinite. Again, another limitation, because uh, uh, this is a physical limitation of our biology. I'm a finite being yes, yes, heart, yes, as, as, as you are as well. There are only a finite number of thoughts that we can have in a lifetime. So uh, one of the things that frightens me is that I'm trying to prove a conjecture at the moment, something I believe is true about the particular symmetrical objects I'm uh, exploring. I'm frightened. First of all, this could be one of Gödel's statements. It may be true and have no proof, in which case... I'm stuck. <laughs> You're wasting your time. Or, or else it might have a proof. And this is my belief. I, th- I think it, it can be proved. But I think that the proof might be so complex that the machinery I have as my human brain is it, not, not capable accurate. of... It's just of a, of a complexity. Every time I try and prove this theorem, I get this kind of crashing of my my hardware that I just can't grasp this thing um, in, in what I've got. And then I will work with uh, colleagues and we'll try and combine our brains... But there's a limitation there of kind of biology. That's
1: a good place to go to this. The last, the last thing I want to talk about, the limitations of our biology. I want to talk about, I guess, the singularity, all those things about yes. um, the hard problem. What, What... Scientists call a hard problem. Philosophers, by the way, have been talking about this without using the word the hard problem, for, description of the hard problem, for a very, very long time. Yes. Scientists come away and re-describe <laughs> it as if they've suddenly discovered this is a problem. But this has been, obviously, for a very long time, people have been talking about this. Yes. But this idea that somehow human life, I imagine you to be hostile to this, but that human life can how, can how be summed up in such a way numerically or scientifically that we can be somehow updated onto some... You know, in, into the to, to yes. the cloud and continue on forever. This yeah. is a fantasy of Kurzweil and and other people. This is not one you share, I presume.
0: I don't know, actually. Because wow. um yes wow. you see, um I I certainly uh I mean it's one of the uh, subjects that I talk about in the What We Cannot Know book. I mean consciousness is one of the great um uh problems of, of our of all time, I think. I certainly don't <clears throat> believe that there's um Uh, something more than the kind of physics that we have you know basically something happens when you put together enough atoms that they begin to get a sense of themselves and have a a consciousness and i'm fascinated what that is you know what, what what is it about the way that our neurons are put together and i think there's something interesting. We've been talking about Girdle. Um, I'm, I'm doing a project at the moment with the Barbican called Girdle Escherbach um, about a book. Great, book. it's a great book. Me, for, um, I, I, me too. Right, I love that. It's, book. it's a wonderful book. book, and uh, it's 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 celebrating its 40th anniversary wow. this year. And I um, actually just took a trip to to go and meet the author Douglas Hofstadter. Who um, uh, he's uh, I was trying to get him to come to London to take part in this event, and he's you know he limits his travel at the moment. So I thought, well, I've got to go to to him. And he's always said that that book was never about maths, music or art. It's about consciousness. And he believes that Gödel's incompleteness theorem, which is the ability of mathematics to kind of talk about itself, is a wonderful tool to try and understand what's going on inside the brain. That um, the language of mathematics, and he thinks there's something very special that happens in mathematics, that if you just take mathematics with kind of um, a a simple version of maths, which just has addition and numbers, it's not complicated enough to to be able to construct this proof. It can't talk about itself. But as soon as it has a certain level, complexity of language with multiplication in there, um, Gödel showed how he could use numbers to kind of code statements about mathematics, uh, what he was now called the Gödel Code. So you can have two different levels of interpretation about um, a a mathematical statement. Uh, It could be just simply a a statement about numbers, or you could interpret those numbers as code for statements about numbers. And he believes it's this, this kind of threshold moments that mathematics kind of goes through, which enables mathematics to talk about itself and therefore to show its own limitations. And he he calls this idea something called a strange loop, um, that uh, it's a kind of mixing of levels, where there seems to be a hierarchy of levels. And this is why he chose Escher, because Escher has some beautiful examples of the hand drawing the hand and you don't know which... It seems to be a level higher with the hand drawing the hand, but then you see that that hand's being drawn by the first hand. Or the staircase where the monks are climbing the staircase... Forever um, and ever and ever. Forever and ever, because what's climbing seems to then return to the beginning again. So this kind of... um, A a loop becomes strange if there's a sort of crossover of levels. And uh, Hofstadter thinks that that's what's happening with Gödel, that um, mathematics, there are different levels where it's able to have multiple meanings and and he wonders whether this idea of a strange loop is the key to um consciousness that there's a certain because after all there seems to be something which happens the complexity of the brain uh, and we see this uh, you know uh, an interesting question when does um an evolving fetus when would you regard it as having consciousness um when uh, when it's a a baby there are certainly moments of of change um One of the key ones is when uh, uh, a baby passes, the or a toddler passes something called the mirror mirror self-recognition test. Um, When does the person know that the image um, in the mirror is is an image of themselves? Uh, It's a a very simple test you can do um, on toddlers. You put a little mark on their forehead surreptitiously. Below the age of 14 months, um, they don't recognise that that's an image of themselves. Uh, Above 14 months, they begin to put their hand to their own forehead when they see their image in the mirror so something is changing in the brain which means there's an evolving sense of self um and maybe that's something similar to to what's happening That Gödel identifies mathematics reaching a complexity that is able to think about itself. Oh
1: dear, there's so many things to say here. I mean, I. (laughs) So so many things to say here. See, I. You press the button. I I completely, I I completely disagree about the hard problem. I mean, I just, I think it's called the easy problem, and and I think it's called the easy problem. And I think, and I think that two-year-olds get it. Okay, so, uh, so I think it's the nature of it's the nature of mathematics, or the way in which you describe the problem, that makes the problem the problem. Okay, my Hmm. two-year-old has no problem recognizing the otherness of the mother that's there. It actually begins, I think it's a precondition yes. for the possibility of experience and not something that we that we seek to go and prove. So your presence here is something that as it, the, the, the fact that you're real, the fact that you have consciousness is, is as it were the beginning of the nature of the conversation, not something I would try and conclude if it's something i try and conclude i'll never do it but if it's something i presume yes if it's if now it's here's the pre- my con- challenge
0: to you though because i think it's one we're going to have to face and it's one i talk about in this new book the creativity code because i think code is becoming so kind of rich and complex and i certainly think it's got a long way to go but there will be a point when i think that code will become conscious i do think that machines will have a sense of self and have a consciousness that we will and when one of those comes into the studio and you interact with it, I think you're going to be uh, have to ask this hard problem of consciousness, which is, you know, uh, I think will become an, an issue. Well, yes, it's certainly uh, behaving like something which is conscious, but is it really just a good fake, or has it got an internal world? And I think that's what I think that's when it becomes really interesting. and they're
1: questions that we can't ask because we have. I, I what? guess what we've done. I mean, not of course we can't ask. No, the no. The questions but... we can't beg upon. The questions we can't answer. Of course we can ask them, but it's, they almost seem unanswerable. Yeah. Um, but because what we've done before is, uh, so I don't actually think to myself as you're sitting here, is this really? No, of so course. we do. So in so we do. It become it is a precondition of the possibility of any sort of engagement, and that's how we've worked. And if we actually turn it into a problem rather than a precondition, it's almost unsolvable. It seems to, it seems to me. I that think this... that's right.
0: I think it is. That's why um, it's. I think it is one of the problems in in the What We Cannot Know book, which I think is unsolvable if you ask it like that i don't think
1: destroy um, all the robots that's
0: what i say <laughs> well uh well that's interesting because the blade runner <laughs> no because i think that this is one of the other messages of the book because i think there's a terrible dystopian and everyone's frightened of it and i don't think we should be frightened And i think that one of the exciting stories that i tell is about um ai telling stories and if ai learns on the way that we tell stories it might start to have an empathy with the way humans think. And that's what we need. We need empathetic AI. And there's an example of an AI trained on stories that we have told. And then it's given a sort of pathway of possibilities of a a new story to tell. And it tells a story that resonates for us as humans and isn't kind of dystopian because it's learnt on on the stories that we've told. So if we give it the good stories, um, I think that we might Let's have. Let's just hope it doesn't learn on the that the, the well, stories of the that won't recognising black
1: faces and will recognising. That's in the white trouble tra-
0: because you know when um, uh, you know Microsoft put out this uh, little Twitter bot, um, which was meant to be machine learning interacting uh, with the Twitter sphere. Uh, within 24 hours, this uh, a Twitter bot had become racist, misogynist, Nazi. It's, uh, speaking and they had to take it off after 24 hours because um, people knew how to manipulate it. So this is why we need to have this conversation.
1: Well, I'm delighted that you're optimistic about it. I, I, I'm still terrified and uh, I'm running to the hills. <laughs> <laughs> very, very nice to chat to you. Marcus DeSoto, cheers. Thanks. Yeah, it's been <laughs> a lot of fun. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Confessions with me, Giles Fraser. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do rate and review it and do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be joined by another guest next week for another episode of Soul Bearing and I do hope you'll tune in then. And do check out the website, unheard.com.